Dame Cool Books, Episode 30, The Prisoner Acting Like a King. Welcome back to our look at Chapter 21, Lord Asriel's Welcome. He's been absent for most of the book, but he helped to set the story in motion with his opening chapters, and here he returns to bring it to its close. The fact that Lord Asriel's Welcome constitutes an ending, as well as a new beginning, is not the least of its contradictions. This and the following chapters are rife with long-awaited explanations, the answers to questions we've had from the beginning of the book, answers which only raise more questions the more we consider them. And so, Lord Asriel's reintroduction to the story returns us to the beginning in that sense as well, even as he provides the bridge to its sequels. The narrator sets the scene with some of the last gestures at world-building we get before the dialogue-heavy ending. The caravan of bears, with Yorick in the lead and a fire-hurler pulled behind, and Lyra and Roger on their young bears in the midst, winds its way through the interior of Svalbard, a wasteland of crags and bitter cold, so that the sled-dog journey to Bolvanger with the Egyptians seems easy by comparison. It's a memory Lyra thinks back to with longing now. And the comparison with her first bear-riding experience with Yorick is also made explicit for us, impressing how much more difficult the going is this time. Then she was exhilarated, and Yorick was pacing smoothly, and she began to see herself as he must see her. And then she was acting on a mysterious impulse from the alethiometer discovering Tony Macarios in the fish shed. But this time, her worrying, lest a similar discovery should prove to be behind the mysterious something the alethiometer has been alluding to, may well underlie some of her ill ease. Transmitted for us from the report Lyra heard from the bear counselor, Sjorin Iserson, which must still be running through her mind, we learn about the arrival of Lord Asriel to Svalbard, negotiations as to the terms of his imprisonment. There are shades here of the stories Lyra used to tell to Roger and then the Egyptian kids of her mighty father, and of the savvy dealing we've seen him display with the scholars in the retiring room. In the breathing space allowed him as a political exile, and thus treated by the bears with courtesy and respect in case he should ever returned to power, and with the added glamour of the spiritual peril surrounding anything to do with dust, we read, The bears had never met anything quite like Lord Asriel's own haughty and imperious nature. He dominated even Jofra Ragnison, arguing forcefully and eloquently, and persuaded the bear king to let him choose his own dwelling place. And so, eventually, he acquires his house facing north. Almost imperceptibly here, the tale told by the sage bear counselor shifts into a more ominous, omniscient mode. And we hear of assembling materials for a laboratory. With furious concentration, he sent for books, instruments, chemicals, all manner of tools and equipment. And somehow it had come, 
from this source or that, some openly, some smuggled in by the visitors he insisted he was entitled to have. By land, sea, and air, Lord Asriel assembled his materials, and within six months of his committal, he had all the equipment he wanted. And so he worked, thinking and planning and calculating, waiting for the one thing he needed to complete the task that so terrified the Oblation Board. It was drawing closer every minute. That significant repetition of materials points us back towards the trilogy's title, with Dark Materials. Clearly, Lord Asriel is not Milton's almighty maker, but he is a variation on the theme. He will use his materials to effectively create more worlds, to what extent he mirrors Milton's Satan as well, from whose perspective we see and traverse that chaos in Book Two of Paradise Lost, gradually becomes apparent in what follows. The window of duration for Lord Asriel's exile is given as six months, though specific dates would still need working out, and the passage ends on a note close to Asriel's own perspective that unsettling reminder about the one thing he needed. Lyra's first glimpse of this dwelling, this laboratory and prison we've heard so much about, provides further juxtapositions. There's no aurora, but lights build lavishly from its windows. Shortly, we'll see Azrael controlling, or at least channeling the aurora, just as the light of his house here stands in place of it. The warm gas lamplight, the windows prodigal of heat in these fierce latitudes, that great turn of phrase that situates this in the grand adventure stories of Kipling or Conrad, that light is contrasted sharply with both Bolvanger's and Yofor's vulgar palace. And for the last time, the children ride the bears up to the front door where they expect, oh, the warmth, the peaceful rest. The promise is too emphatic for the reader not to begin to be a little suspicious, to hear something ominous in that last time. Unless, like Lyra, we are led in for a still greater disillusionment. Greeted by Thorold and Anfang. We get the names of only a few minor characters, demons. There's Radder, Belisaria, the able Siemens, uh, Carillion of Annie, back at Bolvanger, mm. Salcilia, Roger, if he counts as minor. But what is conveyed here by the names of Lord Asriel's servant and his demon? Thorold seems to mean the servant of Thor, so that's fitting given Lord Asriel's use of celestial power, his Nietzschean philosophizing with a hammer and taking it to the idols of Wagner's Gotterdammerung, and Anfang means beginning, that is, genesis particularly in Luther's translation. 
and we'll see Azrael and Lyra read from the book of Genesis. The surrealness of the arrival of little Lyra to this out-of-place house, to this home she never had, comes through with great pathos in the old servants. Am I dreaming? And Lyra is moved by the resemblance to the only home she did have, seeing the light glowing on carpets, leather chairs, polished wood, like nothing she had seen since leaving Jordan College. To Thorold's wonder and to Lyra's emotion comes Lord Asriel's welcome. There's first the growl of the snow leopard demon, Stel Maria, and then Lyra's father stood there, his powerful dark-eyed face at first fierce, triumphant, and eager, and then the color faded from it. His eyes widened in horror as he recognized his daughter. No, no. He staggered back and clutched at the mantelpiece. Lyra couldn't move. Get out, Lord Asriel cried. Turn around, get out, go. I did not send for you. She couldn't speak. She opened her mouth twice, three times, and then managed to say, No, no, I came because... He seemed appalled. He kept shaking his head. He held up his hands as if to ward her off. She couldn't believe his distress. She moved a step closer to reassure him, and Roger came to stand with her, anxious. Their demons fluttered out into the warmth, and after a moment Lord Asriel passed a hand across his brow and recovered slightly. The color began to return to his cheeks as he looked down at the two. Lyra, he said. That is Lyra. So that might remind us of the moment when Mrs. Coulter finds Lyra at Bullfanger. But in the strangeness of this horror of his, we might miss the strangeness of his words. I did not send for you, italicized for us lest we pass over them too lightly. In the manner of sending for those materials of his, perhaps, we'll come back to this. The moment passes, the host recovers. His welcome, if strange, is not wholly inhospitable. He bids Thorold take care of the two children while he goes out to speak with Yorick. And at once, the easiest thing is for everyone concerned to defer to him, Lyra does not press their true relationship. She calls him Uncle Asriel. She meekly answers his questions about who is this, who is that. Not unlike their first interaction that we hear about, where she talks about finding the rook on the roof and how Roger convinced her not to kill it and roast it. He asks, who is Roger? Then, and here, he asks, who is this? And the answer is Roger. And... These terse, interrupting questions and imperatives are so characteristic of Azrael's discourse throughout. They interrupt the flow of whatever Lyra is trying to tell him. And so I wonder if what we're doing here is something like that, too. A moment later, Lyra and Roger have their bath ready. You go first, said Lyra. I'll sit outside and we'll talk. So Roger, wincing and gasping at the heat, got in and washed. They had swum naked together often enough, frolicking in the Isis or the Charwell with other children, 
but this was different. I'm afraid of your uncle, said Roger through the open door. I mean your father. Better keep calling him my uncle. I'm afraid of him too, sometimes. When we first come in, he never saw me at all. He only saw you, and he was horrified till he saw me. Then he calmed down all at once. He was just shocked, said Lyra. Anyone would be. To see someone they didn't expect, he saw me. He last saw me after that time in the retiring room. It's bound to be a shock. It goes on. Um, the echo here of Lyra's bath at Mrs. Coulter's, where Pan first had to avert his eyes, is noteworthy, but this is when we see Roger most clearly in his innocence, in his contentment with the present moment, even as he seizes on something that Lyra doesn't seem to want to notice about that greeting that Lord Asriel gave them. And in his contentment with the present, he's the opposite of Lord Asriel with his grandiose plans. And for a change, Roger is the leader in this conversation, and Lyra the follower. She's afraid of him too sometimes, and when she offers to ask the alethiometer about what's happening, she respects Roger's wishes not to know. Do you want me to ask the symbol reader about it, Lyra says. Well, I don't know. There's things I'd rather not know. Seems to me everything I heard of since the gobblers come to Oxford, everything's been bad. There ain't been nothing good more than about five minutes ahead. Like I can see now, this bath's nice, and there's a nice warm towel there about five minutes away. And once I'm dry, maybe I'll think of something nice to eat, but no further ahead than that. And when I've eaten, maybe I'll look forward to a kip in a comfortable bed. But after that, I don't know, Lyra. There's been terrible things we've seen, ain't there? And more are coming, more than likely. So I think I'd rather not know what's in the future. I'll stick to the present. Yeah, said Lyra wearily. There's times I feel like that, too. So it seems like this may be one of the strongest indications the book gives as to any attempts to analyze it too closely, to interrogate it, and interrupt it with questions. And yet, it is still profoundly ambiguous, given what Roger's willful ignorance here and Lyra's acquiescence to it permits to happen next. Along with the conversations in the basket of the balloon which opened the Svalbard part of the book, Lyra's conversation with Lord Asriel, here in his impossible library, overlooking the bleak, starlit panorama, this conversation stands as one of the culminating investigations within the frame of the story of ideas that it most deeply wants us to ponder. Refreshed by her bit of food and change of clothes, by her talk with Roger, maybe. Lyra is more her firstful self in this discussion. She challenges Azriel's implied slight of Yorick up front, and in the process she foregrounds truth as the basic theme of their conversation. Of course it's true. Yorick never lies. 
When she further gainsays her father, putting Yorick's protectiveness down to John Fa's orders, he asks in his imperious way how John Fa comes in. Then she stands up to him a little more. She'll tell him the truth about that, but on the condition that he tell her something. You're my father, ain't you? Yes, so what? <laughs> but clearly this is not just a piece of information like any other, but one whose consequences are bound up with her sense of herself, which we've seen growing all along. He sees it as enough that she knows, but to her it matters much more how she came to know it, and his hiding the truth, and what it says about his misjudgment of her, and the relationship that they missed out on. He does not seem to see it that way at all. Did he tell you about your mother? Yes. Then there's not much left for me to tell. I don't think I want to be interrogated and condemned by an insolent child. I want to hear what you've seen and done on the way here. Added to the truth of their tie, Lyra appeals to the guarantor of truth in the story. I brought you the bloody Alephiometer, didn't I? Lyra burst out. She was very near to tears. I looked after it all the way from Jordan. I hid it and I treasured it all through what's happened to us. And I learned about using it. And I carried it all this bloody way when I could have just given up and been safe. And you even, you hadn't even said thank you nor showed any sign that you're glad to see me. For Lyra, Azrael's lack of acknowledgement of her and of the alethiometer are of a piece, disqualifying him from human fellowship, making him out as one incapable of love. Infuriatingly, his only reply to this is to call her sentimental, and throwing her earlier words about Yorick in her face tell her that her threat to go away uh, means nothing without knowing where, and, uh, and then in response to all of that, <laughs> which spills out um, uh, as Lyra finds herself pouring out more information, although she never does explain exactly how John Fox comes into it. <laughs> Azrael remains aloof and has his mysterious source of certainty that they'll never reach us, he said calmly. Um, he says he doesn't need an alethiometer for that, so how does he know? And does he actually know? Or is he just that confident? He doesn't say but we can put this together with his sending power, and we may be able to form some conjectures. In terms of his arcane knowledge and powers, Azrael begins to resemble Faust. The knowledge he craves right now, again, is Lyra's story, and she tells the truth. And it was a long tale. And when she finished it, she said, So there's one thing I want to know, and I reckon I've got the right to know it, like I had the right to know who I really was. 
And if you didn't tell me that, you've got to tell me this in recompense. So, what's dust? And why is everyone so afraid of it? That one thing, and that recompense, a word she might have learned from John Fa when he used it in the context of trying to explain why the master of Jordan would have given her the alethiometer after trying to poison Lord Asriel. And the look Lord Asriel gives her here is a reprise of the one that made her blush back in chapter 2. But she's no longer to be put off or to be indulged in, uh, in pretty tricks. No, she's ready this time. So as a first step in his answer about what it is, he tells her part of what dust does. He says, dust is what makes the alethiometer work. Ah, I thought it might, but what else? Um, and Lyra and Tan, maybe as long ago as the Fens had thought so. But equally important to making it work, of course, is Lyra's mode of calm concentration though the consequences of this are hardly worked out, um, we get a summary of the intellectual scrum surrounding Dust's discovery, how Rusakov came upon this elementary particle which does not interact in the normal ways. Well, how he detected it then is not explained, but perhaps it is related to the special photographic process that Asriel was demonstrating back in the retiring room. And is it significant that dust should have been seen first by a Muscovite, a Russian? I'm not sure if there's a real-world analog here. I don't know who it could be. We recap how dust clusters around adults and the connection between the times when demons and dust settle. Curious that each of Lyra's parents should independently explain this to her. And soon we'll see them meet face to face, unaware that she's there listening. And could it have been diabolic possession that led Rusakov to his discoveries? I've speculated that it might be the case with Lord Asriel, given his Faustian powers. But if so, the Inquisitors are unable to determine it conclusively. Instead, they must bow to facts. That dust existed, and um, that left them with the problem of deciding what it was. And given the church's nature, there was only one thing they could have chosen. The magisterium decided that dust was the physical evidence for original sin. <laughs> A sleight of hand perhaps enters in here. He asks, do you know what original sin is? Uh, so she feels that it's like being back at Jordan, being quizzed on something she'd been half taught. Um, he won't be fobbed off with that. He says, uh, no, you don't. Go to the shelf beside the desk and bring me the Bible. Um, the equivalence that's established between 
Adam and Eve as presented in the Genesis story, and the doctrine of original sin as developed throughout the centuries is by no means elaborated here. It is telling, though, that Pelira this time is, is something that hitherto has been a piece of information like any other. Something she might have been half-taught and something she might be quizzed on. Whereas to Azriel, this knowledge is all-important. And so it's all-important that she understands. So this is a neat reversal about her concern and his lack of concern about his fatherhood. Their tellings of the story and their reading of it are fused in a similar way as the doctrine and the myth. The fact of Dust's existence, it seems, cannot be separated from the sorts of stories we tell about it and how we understand those stories. The authority of scientific proof, or church doctrine, or scriptural interpretation, or even the alethiometer, it seems, can only become meaningful as integrated into an individual's narrative, their self-understanding. Indeed, Lord Azriel will shortly give us a modified definition of original sin. Curious to note the changes to the text of Genesis 3, worked by the existence of demons. As we've seen all along in Pullman's story, the demons' presence changes everything. So that a phrase like, to make one wise, is replaced by um, a tree to be desired to reveal the true form of one's demon. And then they saw the true form of their demons and spoke with them. But when the man and the woman knew their demons, they knew that a great change had come upon them. For until that moment it had seemed that they were at one with all the creatures of the earth and the air, and there was no difference between them. And they saw the difference, and they knew good and evil, and they were ashamed, and they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. Now, Seeing of the true form of one's own demon is marked by the loss of connection to the cosmos. We can think back to this when we see Dr. Mary Malone in the treetops a long uh, time from now. We'll get there. Um, but Lyra struggled to find the words she wanted. But it ain't true, is it? Not like chemistry or engineering, not that kind of true. There wasn't really an Adam and Eve. The Cassington scholar told me it was just a kind of fairy tale. And Azrael, as is his wont, goes ad hominem, first of all, not asking who this time, of course, but explaining who the professor is and how his context as such helps to govern the weight of his contention. He says, uh, the Cassington scholarship is traditionally given to a free thinker. It's his function to challenge the faith of the scholars. Naturally, he'd say that. And you notice how often Azrael uses that word, naturally, given the church's nature, what kind of explanatory force he manages to impart with it. 
His analogy here is fascinating. Think of Adam and Eve like an imaginary number, like the square root of minus one. You can never see any concrete proof that it exists, but if you include it in your equations, you can calculate all manner of things that couldn't be imagined without it. So from Lyra's analogy of a fairy tale, which is taken to be dismissive, he shifts the ground to that most rational of disciplines, applied mathematics. On the one hand, the imaginary number is actually less real, in the sense of being more abstract, than the sort of physical representation we picture through the myth. Its way of representing an inner dawning of awareness, which takes place for each individual, is more concrete than the conceptual paradox square root of minus one. On the other hand, the effect is actually to equate these two manners of giving an account, the narrative and the scientific, or the mythic and the rational, even to ground the rational upon the mythic, to show again how each ultimately depends on our twin capacities of imagination and praxis. And so when we use it, we can do things otherwise unimaginable. It's a little strange that dust is more physical proof than the settling of demons in a fixed form or any of the number of physiological and hormonal changes which could be measured in adolescence. But then our attention is shifted back to language as Lyra is reading the passage at the end of the story, as Azrael bids her do, and he glosses it for us. Um, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Lord Azrael said, Church scholars have always puzzled over the translation of that verse. Some say it should read not, Unto dust shalt thou return, but thou shalt be subject to dust. And others say the whole verse is a kind of pun on the words ground and dust. And it really means that God's admitting his own nature to be partly sinful. No one agrees. No one can, because the text is corrupt. But it was too good a word to waste. And that's why the particles became known as dust. So, his calling it too good to waste recalls what we heard about Iris' stories with Roger. It was incredulous, uh, but how they subsequently played them out anyway. The Sherbert tip. Um, it also raises a number of interpretive questions. So, can this passage be translated so as to yield that reading, subject to dust, and the puns? the admission that God's nature is partly sinful. I haven't studied it enough to know for sure, but I've got the authority of Tony Watkins, anyhow, uh, in his book, uh, Dark Matter. He suggests that this is Pullman's fanciful reading here. But that, as much as Lord Asriel's conclusion that the text is corrupt, is not going to stop the reader of the story from being free to wonder about the implications. If, like Lyra, the upshot 
is to make the story more real to us and to make us more aware of its awesome significance. As reading the likes of Blake, Milton, and von Kleist uh, did for Pullman, then that would seem to be all to the good, so long as we are free to draw our own conclusions about how far to take it. From here, Lyra asks about the gobblers, about whose leader in particular, Asriel seems quite well informed. Clever of her to spot the chance of setting up her own power base, but she's a clever woman, as I dare say you've noticed. He remarks, and we hear in more detail how the magisterium plays off and, if necessary, washes its hands of its various factions. Uh, Asriel's admiration of how Mrs. Coulter played this game, saying, it's a, a good move um, to specialize in dust, um, that echoes Lee's exclamation of being a good trick to play when he recognizes Asriel's game on the scholars. And Asriel extends only the most mixed and grudging admiration to another of the church's practices, saying there was a precedent for the cutting. That is, something like it had happened before. Do you know what the word castration means? It means removing the sexual organs of a boy so that he never develops the characteristics of a man. And in response to Lyra's anguish, he momentarily drops his sardonic mask when he says it would be gentle by comparison. She says, it isn't. It isn't. No, of course not. And it turns out that it was Mrs. Coulter herself, so sweet and reasonable, who had the idea about doing that cutting in the first place, which might explain part of her personal interest in watching the ordeal. And she got the idea from her exotic travels, discerning in the example of the African zombie and the northern phantoms of the sort Tony Costa described, proof of the possibility of humans surviving the separation from their demons. And this combination of pagan practices, the one emphasizing enslavement and the other the haunting isolation of separation, and bringing them under the aegis of the church with its own practice of castration and its, well, own doctrine about separations, all this is explicable um, for Azrael, anyway by that obsession with original sin. At that point, Lord Azrael's demon twitched her ears, and he laid his hand on her beautiful head. There was something else that happened when they made the cut, he went on, and they didn't see it. The energy that links body and demon is immensely powerful. When the cut is made, all that energy dissipates in a fraction of a second. Later, Lyra will 
remember how he spoke of harnessing this energy, but for now she is oblivious. She is unable to sit still. She got up and walked to the window and stared over the wide, bleak darkness with unseeing eyes. She's unseeing here, thinking how cruel they are. No matter how important it was to find out about original sin, it was too cruel to do what they'd done to Tony Macarius and the others. Nothing justified that. So that might recall Milton's aim to justify the ways of God to man, um, laying some heavy skepticism on that, to say nothing of a Pauline or Protestant argument about justification. Lord Asriel does not answer, really, when Lyra asks next if he was involved in that cutting. Still, the parallel between his lab and Bolvanger, quote, hiding in the far north, that, that's there. And we know his discovery of the manganese titanium alloy contributed to the construction of the silver guillotine, whether he intended it or not. And his mention of the aurora and the world visible in it as the source of dust causes Lyra to turn around again and focuses her attention. In lieu of the love and the trust that she would like to give, she can only feel admiration. But later, she'll worry about his madness. And we hear again that the witches have long known of these parallel worlds, but that the mathematical proof was accomplished only some 50 years or more ago. We hear that the discoverers, the authors Barnard and Stokes, presumably, were excommunicated. Asriel waxes melodramatic at this point. But no one thought it would ever be possible to cross from one universe to another. That would violate fundamental laws, we thought. Well, we were wrong. We learned to see the world up there. If light can cross... So can we, and we had to learn to see it, Lyra, just as you learn to use the alethiometer. That connection between reading the alethiometer and the northern lights was pointed out by Roger's impression of their unlikeness to language in the previous chapter, but also in the sense that Lyra had when she first glimpsed it in person from the ship's deck before talking to Kaisa. So she has been learning to see the city, just as we have been possibly uh, alongside Lyra, and to cross over to it. In some sense, that's what our entire experience of reading this first book constitutes. Now, finally, Azriel gives his analogy for the nature of the parallel worlds. Now that world and every other universe came about as the result of possibility. Take the example of tossing a coin. It can come down heads or tails, and we don't know before it lands which way it's going to fall. If it comes down heads, that means that the possibility of its coming down tails has collapsed. Until that moment, the two possibilities were equal. But on another world, it does come down tails. 
And when that happens, the two worlds split apart. I'm using the example of tossing a coin to make it clear. In fact, these possibility collapses happen at the level of elementary particles. But they happen in just the same way. One moment, several things are possible. The next moment, only one happens, and the rest don't exist. Except that other worlds have sprung into being on which they did happen. In his interview with Tony Watkins, Pullman gives a modified account for the original bifurcation of the many worlds, owing to the rebellion of the angel Wisdom. And I'll put a link to that so you can check it out. The coin toss is a much simpler one, and yet it's illustrative of the space Pullman would like to carve out between predestination, on the one hand, and reductive material determinism on the other. So whenever a possibility collapses in one world, it remains viable in some other. It even perhaps generates that other world, splitting off, as he says in a telling phrase. So that at every moment, to go back to the Miltonic language, the almighty maker possibility is at work, ordaining his dark materials to create more worlds. So maybe it's conflated there, which of them, possibility, the maker, the material, is active here, whether human beings' choice is just a loose way of speaking about this complex process. And once more, Azrael's own obsession reveals itself, and with it, this time, his redefinition of original sin. He says, if light can cross the barrier between the universes, if dust can, if we can see that city, then we can build a bridge and cross. It needs a phenomenal burst of energy, but I can do it. Somewhere out there is the origin of all the dust, all the death, the sin, the misery, the destructiveness in the world. Human beings can't see anything without wanting to destroy it, Lyra. That's original sin, and I'm going to destroy it. Death is going to die. And Lyra sat still. She was afraid of her father, and she admired him profoundly, and she thought he was stark mad. But who was she to judge? Now, we've already heard her past judgment on the church, of course, based on her mother's cruel experiments, and she'll shortly have more than enough evidence to make up her mind about her father, too. Now, as an afterthought, almost, Azrael passes up the alephiometer. It would be no use to me without the books anyway. Do you know, I think the Master of Jordan was giving it to you. Did he actually ask you to bring it to me? Well, yes, she said. But then she thought again and realized that, in fact, the Master never had asked her to do that. She had assumed it all the time, because... Why else would he have given it to her? No, she said. I don't know. I thought, well, I don't want it. It's yours, Lyra. But good night, child. 
I were to go and talk to Pullman, to bring him this project across all these months and difficulties, I worry sometimes that he would react very much like Lord Asriel does to Lyra's well-meaning delivery of the alethiometer. And so I haven't tried to get in touch with Pullman. I have contacted Tony Watkins, however, and I do hope that we'll have a chance to do a conversation at some point here in the near future. Um, but that would be the end of this episode, but for a short uh, excursion into our imaginary role-playing video game. Um, you know, in most role-playing type adventure games where you can explore freely, you can also go back to earlier stages. And lots of times you'll return to find there are new things going on there. Uh, new areas will become accessible to you by using your new skills, or at least people there will have some new dialogue for you. Um, and so in this game about the Golden Compass, since we're following closely demon-like story as it's told with a few detours, there hasn't been so much opportunity to go back and explore locations more than once through. However, at this point in the game, with Lyra retelling her whole long tale, players will get the opportunity to go back through any part of the game so far, or at least that portion of it seen from her perspective. And so if there were side areas that you missed visiting, or important secrets you couldn't figure out how to unlock at the time, or if you just wanted to play a favorite level over again, this will be your chance. And even in games where you can range over the world freely, there comes a time near the end of the game where you can only go forward and not back. So let's say that the conclusion of Lyra's conversation with Lord Asriel would be that point of no return for this game. Just as the bridge, the couple of bridges that she'll come to next, are literal point of no return for her journey. Yeah. Maybe in some other world we have a different opportunity that will arise at that point. Uh, it'll depend on the possibilities uh, that we find at our disposal here. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening.